evening, everyone. Thank you, Ruth and Rachel and Stephen and Yarrow and Johnny. Uh, two weeks ago, we left Saul, the current rather dysfunctional king of Israel, eating his last supper. And he was eating it with a medium on the night before he and his sons were predicted to die. Samuel, the prophet of God, who was dead, had been brought up by a medium to deliver the distressing news that in less than 24 hours, Saul and his boys were going to join him in the next life. And so at the end of 1 Samuel 28, which if you were here two weeks ago, we said was and is a rather complex and somewhat confusing chapter. And so if you're just visiting tonight and talk of mediums and prophets being brought back from the dead, you're going, sorry. Uh, then do read 1 Samuel 28 later on or, or maybe listen to the podcast from a couple of weeks ago. But at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul is in a dark, bleak, hopeless, distressing place. He's effectively on death row. And in a few weeks as part of this series, we'll find out exactly what happens the next day and whether the prediction comes true. But as we get into chapter 29, which is our text for this evening, we're back with David. And as the story rewinds, we're going to kind of discover how things are working out for David in Gath as the servant of a Philistine king called Achish. And so if you do have a Bible, could I actually invite you to turn to the start of 1 Samuel chapter 28. It's page 300 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, and I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 28 because they kind of flow better into chapter 29. It's almost that verses 1 and 2 of 28 are there. Then we press pause. We move to Saul and the whole medium of Endor thing. And then we're back with David. So here's kind of setting the context. 1 Samuel 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish, who's the Philistine king, said to David, you must understand that you and your men, there are about 600 of David's men, you will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. So, as you read those two verses, what you discover is a fight is imminent. There's going to be a battle between the Philistine and the Israelite army any day now. David, who, remember, is the chosen and the anointed next king of Israel, Saul's successor. For some reason, and if you've been tracking this series, you'll know, but for some reason, he is a servant of a Philistine king. In fact, it's more than that. He's a bodyguard for life. 
to a Philistine king. And therefore, to say that David finds himself in a rather compromised position and place would be a gross understatement. David has been here for 16 months, engaging in his fair share of deception and lies. But now, after 16 months, he faces a major dilemma. Think about this. Is this battle about to commence between Philistines and Israelites? If David doesn't fight with the Philistines, then Achish will surely kill him or try to for being disloyal. But if David does join ranks with the Philistines and fight against the Israelites, then there's no chance he's ever going to be their king. David is backed into a corner and there's no obvious way out. And if nothing else, one of the simple and yet pretty important and profound lessons this uncovers, and this is one of the key points for this evening, is that compromise eventually creates a problem. You find yourself in a place that you probably never intended to be. And you're facing a choice that you never thought you would have to make. And unless something relatively dramatic and from left field and unexpected happens, then this is not going to end well. And so David has spent these 16 months mixing it up, doing his own thing. But eventually, and this is often the case, it catches up with him and he finds himself in an incredibly tight spot. It's not even make or break time. There is no make here. There's only break. David is in a mess. And there's nothing he can do to get out of this. And back on track. There is only inevitable disaster looming. Either way. Whoever he chooses to fight for. It's not going to end well. Unless there's some kind of, kind of dramatic, unforeseen intervention and preferably of the divine kind. So let's read on. Now we're into chapter 29. Let's actually see what happens. Verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek. And Israel camped by the spring of Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands... David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. So, try to picture the scene. Various Philistine units are all converging into this kind of one place to unite and fight. And as Achish and his troop arrive from the province of Gath, David is in tow. David and his 600 men are bringing up the rear. And that doesn't go unnoticed by the other Philistine commanders. Verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. 
But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the man back that he may return to the place that you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So what's happening here now is that the Philistine commanders are convinced that Achish has lost the plot. He's naive. Either that or he's just completely stupid. Has he forgotten who it is that they're gathering and uniting to fight? We're here to fight the Israelites. And here's David, who is a Hebrew, with 600 of his men in tow with you. Have you forgotten what David did to Goliath? Achish. And at the end of verse 4, there's, there's more than a, an intended pun as they refer to David taking the heads of their own men. Because remember, that's exactly what David had done to their prize fighter. He had lopped his head off. And so here's the commanders of the Philistine army saying to Achish, do you, not, do you not realize who this is? Plus, have you not heard the song? The one that everybody's singing. There's even a dance that goes with it about David's exploits of killing non-Israelites. And here he is with you. And you're wanting him to fight with us. So, question. Why is he here? It's a good question. As far as the Philistine commanders were concerned, you see, David didn't belong here. He, He didn't fit in. He shouldn't have been here. And I find this interesting because sometimes when you're in a place of compromise, it's actually the people who don't share your faith, but who know that you have a faith, who directly question your behavior and your presence and your choices. They're the ones who are often left scratching their heads and wondering what's going on. Why are you here? Why are you with him? Why are you with her? Why are you doing this? Why are you saying that? You you, you don't belong here. And Achish tries to give a reason. And and he argues that, listen, I, I totally trust this David. He's been with me for over a year. I can't say a bad word about him. In fact, he he even goes as far as to say, listen, this guy's faultless. I I can vouch for him. He's one of us now. You're okay. Relax. But the Philistine top brass are, are having none of it. They're taking no chances. And so they send Achish to deliver the bad news, which in the grand scheme of things, and we'll come to it in a moment, is really, 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 really good news. Look at verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. And I would be pleased for you to serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I've found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back 
and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. Now, what an opportunity. Like, what an intervention. What a way out. Didn't see that coming. David has been saved by yet more unlikely saviors. And that is a recurring theme in this story. A bunch of Philistine commanders are actually rescuing him. David's backed into a corner. Who am I going to fight? Who will I fight for? This is going to end in a mess. And yet the Philistines step in and say, tell you what, head home and tell you know something? Go in peace. Incredible. David didn't deserve this. But you see, when God is working out his purposes in your life, you rarely get what you do deserve. In fact, if anything, you often get and receive what you absolutely don't deserve. And what's that? That's grace. That's grace. You see, if David got what he deserved in these moments, he should have been just left in that corner. He should have been just left there. Let's see how this pans out for you, David. Let, let's see who you're going to fight for and we'll fight with. But God, in his grace, steps in using the most unlikely of saviors. And David's given a way out. Gets what he doesn't deserve. And sometimes we, we just don't appreciate it. We don't get it. And it appears that David didn't because rather than pack up immediately, rather than grab the lifeline, rather than get out of there as fast as his legs could carry him before someone changes their mind, David actually queries the decision. He defends his loyalty to Achish and he questions, listen, why can't I fight? Look at verse 8. But what have I done, asked David? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now, why can't I go and fight? Now, this is an interesting phrase. Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? You see, David's compromise has reached such a position and place and level that he's become irrational. And he doesn't even realize that, that one, he is in a corner, he is in a mess, and two, he doesn't realize the amazing chance he's got to get out of this, to escape with his life. And what's also fascinating is that the only person here in this whole chapter who refers to God, the only person is Achish, this foreign Philistine king. Verse 6, he's the one that says, as surely as the Lord lives. Plus, he's about to describe David in verse 9 as an angel of God. What David seems to be doing, and this is what often happens whenever you compromise, you park God somewhere. You take your eyes off him. You forget to look for him and to him. And so instead of thanking God for his divine intervention in his life, the unforeseen chance that has come his way to fight another day, David can't see it and doesn't see it. And what does he do? He only begs up himself. Look at me, Achish. Been your servant. Done nothing wrong. Let me fight. No reference to God. And therefore, David's on course for spiritual disaster. But thankfully, the intervention continues despite his protest, despite his kicking against the traces. Look at verse 9. 
Uh, Kish answered, listen, David, I know you have been pleasing in my eyes, pleasing as an angel of God. That, that's the level of compromise David had reached. We need to recognize this, that a Philistine king was so pleased with him. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, you must not go up with us into battle. So get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is late. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel, which is where the battle was going to be. And so end of chapter 28, Saul's in this dark, hopeless, bleak, disastrous place, death row. No future beyond the next 24 hours. End of chapter 29, David walks into the light. Literally, literally walks into the light, it says here. And spiritually, because a new day begins and his destiny awaits. And why? That, that's the, the bit I, I want to know. Why? All because of God's amazing grace and inexhaustible mercy. David, as I said, didn't deserve this. David has messed up. David has compromised. David hasn't always made good choices. And in the future, he won't either, as we will discover as we continue to track his story. But God's grace which is his unmerited favor. And God's mercy, which is all about not getting what you do deserve, they constantly pursued David. And for those of us who are Christians here this evening, and I realize that's probably the majority here, this chapter may seem at one level, and I must admit when I read it earlier in the week, I thought, oh, where am I going to go with this one? And at one level, it is quite a bland chapter for many people. But it's a chapter that should instill hope, genuine hope, because it stands as a graphic reminder that despite our foolishness on occasions, despite our tendency to wander and lose our focus and compromise and do our own thing at times, and maybe for a prolonged time, like a year and four months, or maybe even longer, despite that, God does not cast us off in our foolishness. As one writer puts it, our bungling does not evaporate his mercy. It's a great word. Bungling. You see, as David was one day able to write, and we all know Psalm 23 so well, but I don't think I've ever really got it as I got it this week, or at least one of the lines as I got it this week. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely your goodness and your mercy will pursue me not follow me, follows to TM actually, will pursue me all the days of my life. You see, God doesn't give up on us. We may temporarily lose our way, but his goodness and his grace and his mercy tracks us every step. That was David's story. And so thank God for his divine intervention in David's life and in ours, even though we don't always ask for it, nor deserve it. You see, David walked into the light that day. He walked towards his destiny, not because he came to his senses in this moment, 
Not because somebody forced him to have a reality check. And certainly not because of some lucky break. I mean, some people read this and just think, hey, that was, that was close. No, not because of some lucky break. David walked into the light that day. David was able to walk towards his destiny because of God's grace and mercy via a bunch of unexpected saviors. And God will often use unexpected means and people to get us back on track. And sometimes to save us from ourselves. And I know in my own life, I can certainly think back to a few unexpected saviors. People who stepped in at certain points and saved me from myself. God's ways are surprising. They're certainly not ours, that's for sure. And what this also tells us and clarifies is that, that God is often at work in our lives in subtle and silent ways. Almost behind the scenes, God is at work here, under the radar. And I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis, and I know I've been quoting him frequently during this series, but he has got a, a brilliant commentary on 1 Samuel, but this is what he says. As you ponder the ground you've traveled, the murky stuff the Lord has carried you through, the twists and turns of your life, can you not see glimpses of silent mercy and quiet care? There was no noise or tempest. Yahweh was there, but not obviously. That's what this chapter teaches us. God's there, working out his purposes in David's life against all the odds. I believe David could. And surely this incident is one of those which was included as he wrote Psalm 23. As he realized how close he came that day when he was backed into a corner to things turning out very differently. And you know, it's sometimes only when we stop and we reflect and we look back that we learn to appreciate God's hand at work in our lives in the subtle and silent and subdued ways. Surely your goodness, God, and your mercy pursues me every single day. But as I finish this evening, the question I have is, but, and some of you maybe are asking it, but what about Saul? What about Saul? Why does it appear that his bungling did evaporate God's mercy? It's a good question. It's a tough one to explain adequately or fully understand. But one of the only ways I can get my head around this is by returning to a kind of phrase and mantra that we often use here at Windsor. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You see, David's heart was teachable. He was willing to return to God, willing to re-engage with God, willing to rediscover strength in God as we'll discover next Sunday evening if you come back. And at one level, this, this really shouldn't be that great a surprise because right from the word go, right from the very first week of the series, 1 Samuel 16, whenever we were first introduced to David, what was it that stood out? Yeah, everybody else was looking at his outward appearance. But what was it God was looking at? His heart. 
God knew his heart. And as scripture testifies, David will go down in history despite his bungling, despite his waywardness, despite his compromise, despite his poor choices up to now, and at times they will get even worse. But how does David go down in history? How is he remembered by scripture? As the man after God's own heart. See, David's heart was ultimately tuned to the right frequency. At times there was interference, significant and prolonged on some occasions, but God in his grace and his mercy was constantly retuning and resetting the signal. Saul, on the other hand, had effectively cut the wires and disconnected the signal. His disobedience, his rebellion, his unwillingness to repent had sealed his fate, for want of a worse word. His heart, it turns out, was not teachable. And therefore, whenever he did inquire of the Lord, and we looked at this two weeks ago, whenever he did inquire of the Lord, whenever he did attempt to re-engage with God, he was met with what? Silence. Divine silence. And left totally abandoned by God. And I don't think there is a more harrowing thought. And so the contrast between where Saul finds himself at the end of chapter 28 and where David finds himself at the end of chapter 29 is stark and it's arresting. And as we leave here this evening, three key thoughts. One, beware of compromise because it will eventually create problems and probably will back you into a corner with no obvious way out. Secondly, pay close attention to the condition of your heart. My life verse, Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, this is the most important thing you can do, David, above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything else. And thirdly, thank God for his grace and his mercy in your life, even though you don't always see it, you don't even always realize it. I've asked uh, the praise band to sing a song for us. I'm not sure if they're all gonna sing, maybe just Stephen. And it's this song here called, Your Mercy Reigns. And let me just show you the words, because I don't really know this song, but the words struck me. My God is strong enough to raise me from the grave. Your love is great enough to take away my shame. Your mercy reigns. And then I love this line. My God is making you the wreckage of my heart. Your hand is reaching down to pull me from the dark. Your mercy reigns. Your mercy covers me. Your grace sustains. Your grace is all I need. And your spirit is my strength to overcome the past. I set my eyes on you and find a grace that lasts. Your mercy reigns. Your mercy covers me. Just listen, reflect on these words.